Hello, my name's Tom Boone. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we've got for you this week. Coming up today, I'll take a look at aviation's reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, while Tom updates us on the status of the world's biggest plane. Joe will see how Embraer plans to tackle the cargo market, while I'll tell you about my holiday. (laughs) Finally, I'll tell you what piqued my interest with an aid shipment to Ukraine from the UK. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And I should like um, give a sort of little asterisk there that I'm not just going to talk about like all of my sightseeing and it's actually airplane related when I talk about my holiday, but stay tuned to find out more. We believe you, Tom. Thousands wouldn't. <laughs> so, so I wanted to kick off today with um, just a bit of a roundup of what's been going on um, in Russia and uh, with the Russian airlines, because obviously that is the big news topic right now. Um, Tom was away all last week, so he's mm. just catching up really on how things have developed. Um, I think probably on the last podcast we did, we mentioned a few bits and pieces about this, but things have changed a lot in the last couple of weeks. Um, most notably, Airbus, Boeing and Embraer have now cut off parts supply to Russian airlines. Um, that mm. means they can't buy any new planes, they can't get any parts for their existing planes. Um, and all three manufacturers really within about 48 hours shut down their operations in Russia. Um, so it's kind of a, a bit of a disastrous situation for all Russian airlines. You know, I think it's about mm. two thirds of the, the national fleet is non or it's from one of those three manufacturers. It's non-Russian. Obviously, they do make their own planes, which puts them in a slightly different position to some countries where we've seen similar sanctions in the past. Mm. Um, for example, Iran, I think, is probably the, the closest parallel we can draw um, because they've been under sanctions on and off since about the mid 90s. Um, mm. And that means that, you know, they, they do have, it's a bit of an Avgeek's dream over there because they've had to keep all these older aircraft flying and, you know, mm. they've got A300s and um, old 747s and stuff like that. So it is exciting, you know, for an Avgeek, but for the airlines, it's a bit of a nightmare. Um, mm. So I was having a look um, at how Russian aviation will survive and what's actually going to be missing in terms of delivered airplanes. Um, so for Airbus, as an example, um, they've got maybe a slightly lower risk than Boeing. Boeing's got more airplanes outstanding to go to Russia, um, but they do still have a significant supply that's supposed to be going over there. Um, In Mm. total, they've got 22 aircraft listed by CH Aviation as being destined for Russian airlines. Um, But interestingly, a large proportion of those are its flagship widebody, the A350, um, yeah. Airbus's biggest Russian customer is, of course, Aeroflot. They've got 13 A350-900s on order. Um, they have taken delivery of nine. The latest was delivered on February the 24th, um, literally days before the sanctions kicked in, which would stop them delivering any more. Um, there aren't any delivery dates listed for the outstanding aircraft, but I was checking out AIB Family Flights, which looks at all mm. the kind of test flying around Toulouse. An MSM 471, which is ready to go to Aeroflot, has been um, undergoing its kind of flight testing. It was literally in the final phase of its flight t- testing. So it probably yeah. would have been delivered this month, but obviously now it will not. 
Um, on the narrow body side, the A320neo family has um, quite a lot of outstanding Russian orders. S7 Airlines is one of the biggest. Um, oh, yeah. they, they've got three A321LRs and one A320neo, um, but they haven't got any delivery dates for those. The other narrow body customer is Smartavia, and they're expecting three A320neos. Interestingly, all three of those were slated to be delivered this month. Um, oh, wow. And AIB Family Flights noted that two of them have been um, undergoing their kind of final test flights. So um, mm. MSN 10786 on February the 18th took its first flight, and it's now done a couple of flights since. Um, and N MSN... 10791 took its first flight on March the 1st. So they, they were all on track to be delivered literally this month, um, which is, you know, going to be a problem for Airbus. But on the Boeing side, the Boeing risk is kind of larger. So they've got outstanding orders for 42 aircraft with Russian Airlines right now. Um, so there's six 777-200 freighters for Airbridge Cargo, which is a kind of offshoot of Volga Dnepr, um, mm. and 36 737 MAX 8s, which are across a few airlines, including Uter, Ural Airlines and S7 Airlines. Um, so, you know, for both of the big manufacturers, I, I have to say that these are only orders that CH Aviation has got listed as ready to be delivered. So they've got to be firmed and they've got to be loaded into the manufacturer's books and they hmm. don't include anything that's coming via a Lisa. Um, so, but it's interesting to kind of look and see what the, what the situation is going to be. Um, but something that I read last week that I think you'll find interesting, Tom, is um, actually, according to IFN News, the Lufthansa Group is eyeing some of these planes that are sitting around oh, yeah. undelivered. Um, Carsten Spohr said that the group's in talks with all aircraft manufacturers regarding additional deliveries. Um, hmm. And of particular interest to them are the Airbus A350s, which are destined That's for no Aeroflot. surprise to me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Lufthansa Cargo is apparently eyeing the additional Boeing 777 freighters. Um, mm. So they may well I know well they were taking on some um, ex-Emirates uh, 777 freighters because they just they didn't even have chance to paint it properly before they entered it into service because there's just that much demand right now. <laughs> That's incredible. So I don't think the manufacturers will have any issues placing these shiny new aircraft with new, uh, new airlines. But... Um, yeah, interesting mm. to watch it kind of unfolding anyway. And I guess a lot of it will depend on how long the situation stays the way it is right now. Yeah, um, I mean, it's definitely one to watch this space. And um, it, I really have no clue how long it's going to last or what's going to happen. So, no, um, no, nobody does. One thing we do have a bit of a clue about now is the world's largest plane. And um, it does seem, sadly, that it's been destroyed. And, mm. um, you know, I, I mean, I've got a put an asterisk there that of course um the loss of human life in ukraine is far worse than a plane at any point but um you know we are an aviation news website so um it, if anyone's reporting about planes it is us um so i mean it was kind of sad because already on um february 24th there were sort of reports that the antonov an225 had been destroyed and it's 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 been a bit of a weird story because it's been flip-flopping between it has been destroyed and it hasn't been destroyed for much of a week uh, the most part of a week and now on friday it finally appeared to reach the status of we have proof that it's been destroyed mm. um but like, where where should we start? We should probably start the uh, the beginning of the story. So on, on the twenty fourth of February, um, there were reports that um, Russian forces were dis um, 
launching an air assault operation on Homestel Airport, which is where Antonov Airlines is based. Uh, you know, and there had been some reports on Twitter that this plane had been destroyed, but it was, you know, like. It, as is always the case with rapidly developing situations, you can never quite see where it's come from. Mm. And you can't, you, obviously, there was no way to verify it because uh, if there was sort of like a military firefight going on at this airport, you can't just, even if we'd been in Ukraine, we wouldn't have been able to just wander over and see, oh, is it there? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of an interesting one. At the time, you know, an Antonov spokesperson told us that they, didn't know what was happening as they'd been evacuated from the airport. Um, Although at the time, uh, Dmitry Antonov, who's one of the pilots of the aircraft, um, he posted on Facebook that um, the aircraft was intact. Um, Although, again, we don't know where that that came from. Um, But then, you know, it there was more satellite pictures and the satellite pictures kind of um, hinted that maybe it wasn't okay. Mm. And then Antonov kept saying um, in response, please wait, please wait for official confirmation. Yeah. Um, and then sort of on Friday, late Thursday, early Friday, we finally got some pictures slash video that show the AN-225. And I mean, saying that it looks worse for wear is putting it lightly. It's this, you know, they they were talking about rebuilding it if if necessary, but it it really does look at this point that it's beyond Mm. beyond repair. Um, You know, the amount of, I I, I feel if you were going to fly an Antonov 225 again, it would be easier to finish that second one that's yeah. just sitting incomplete than to uh, repair the first one because it, it, it does look like a total write-off at this point. It does. It does. And I have to question whether they will rebuild mm. or build another one or whatever I mean, it is they're promising to do because you've got to think it's a fairly niche aircraft yeah, with a very small role to play in the overall cargo freight market. You know, you think yeah. it, they'd be better off building two more AM124s than just one AM225 and it's probably going to cost the same. I mean, it, it's a tricky one because, you know, for certain cargo, it's been needed. And mm. I guess the the other options in those cases would be to send it via sea, which would take a long time. But True. is there really the demand? Because, you know, it's being it's sitting in storage for most of the year. So it doesn't you know, get used an awful lot, does it? You know, yeah. it's a, it is it is useful in specific circumstances, but those are so yeah. few and far between. You've got to wonder whether I'm it's worth sure maintaining it's worth an entire airframe yeah. just for that purpose. But uh, yeah, I think it was useful that they had it, but sort of going out of the way for another one is maybe not worth it but I certainly you know, hope they do build another one because yeah. I've never seen it in person yeah, and it likewise. was a, a bucket list plane to see mm. um, I feel like Russia's just taken that opportunity away from me <laughs> mm. very personally angry <laughs> mm. um, so I wanted to get away from the Russia and Ukraine crisis for just a moment because we got an mm. exciting announcement at the beginning of this week um, and that is that Embraer is throwing its hat into the ring for for the freight market. Now, we've seen some Woo! quite exciting moves over the last few months from both Airbus and Boeing, both launching um, freight variants of their newest wide-body jets. Well, now Embraer is launching the E-190 and E-195 passenger-to-freight conversions. Oh, um, nice. So, you know, that's, pass- a, that's the, e, the E-1s and not the E-2s, the E-1s, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would assume you could do it with an E-2 as well, but mm, they're but um, probably a bit too new for that new. right now. Exactly. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so 
um, they're going to fill the gap in the freighter market between what's existing now. So at the moment, on the small end, you've got turboprops like ATR have got their um, ATR-72 freighter version and the larger narrowbody jets. Um, so, for example, Airbus does the A320 family passenger to freight conversion and Boeing does the Boeing 737 BCF, which is a Boeing converted freighter. Um, so the full freighter conversion will be made available for all pre-owned E-190 and E-195 aircraft, and they're expecting entry into service in early 2024. Um, so Embraer told us that the freighter will have over 50% more volume, three times the range of large cargo turboprops, and up to 30% lower operating costs than narrow bodies. So they think it's a, a nice little niche that the E-Jet fits into quite sweetly. Um, and they reckon they're going to be selling approximately 700 aircraft over the next 20 years. Um, so it's, this is a bit of a timing play for Embraer, really, because the E-Jets that have entered service, you know, they, they started going into service about 10, 15 years ago. They're now coming out of long-term leases and beginning their replacement cycle. So obviously Embraer is ramping up production on the E-2 side to replace these jets. Um, but, you know, these E-Jets, although they are out of the initial lease, that doesn't mean that they're no longer useful um, so, you know, the, moving them into the freighter market is a really good way to do that. Um, so the, the most mature e-jets they reckon will get another 10 to 15 years of operational use. Um, and then they can be replaced, obviously, with more efficient, more sustainable aircraft for the passenger side. And on the on the freighter side, we've got a new um, contender. So I was really excited to hear that. I think it's a, a great move by Embraer. You know, the freighter market's absolutely booming right now. And there is a huge gap in that provision for the kind of last um, five to 600 miles. Um, although I have to say the ejects can go a lot further than that. But I think that final mileage from the big cargo hubs to the regional airports is a, a really good one that they can fill very effectively. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they can. Um, and good luck to them. I always love to see a new plane, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned it's probably not the E2 at the moment, but you know where I did see an E2? Oh, probably in Norway. In Tromso. Um, it was... Um, <laughs> was it Widerow's? Nice, yeah, Widerow's nice. E2. Um, so, yeah, I was um, jaunting about Europe over the past week and, you know, I just thought I'd give sort of a concise trip review type segment of our podcast so feel free to tell me to shut up if it gets boring joe um <laughs> it was quite an interesting um thing though i had five flights in total two of them connect or like four of them connecting uh but so two connecting flights if that makes sense um so I started off in Frankfurt and, you know, I was quite excited because I had like a, a, a 7.30 flight, I think, which doesn't sound early, does it? Uh, it's quite early Compared when to, you have to well, get there two hours before these yeah, days. Yeah, exactly. 7.30 <laughs> doesn't sound early. But then when I had to set my alarm for 4.30, I suddenly realized how early it was. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, you know, that was interesting because um, that was my first ever domestic German flight. And that was with Lufthansa from Frankfurt to Munich. And, you know, the real interesting thing I found there was that um, they were welcoming everybody on board this airplane in English, despite it being a sort of German airline flying from Germany to Germany uh, with German crew. But um, that was that. <laughs> and then uh, we had a 40-minute connection at Munich, which I thought was going to be horrible. Um, turns out it wasn't, you know. Um, there was no need to go for an extra security check. So we literally just had to walk from one gate to the other down a straight corridor. And um, they weren't even boarding by the time we got there. Um, then it was a sort of two-hour 15 flight with Lufthansa up to... 
Oslo and um that was quite fun you know it was interesting because they had the uh, buy on board menu and it's not for me you know like it's it's just overly health kick food um i'm not saying there's a bad uh, there's anything bad about having some healthy food on your menu but you know it's just like i just want something like a ham and cheese sandwich you know something simple and plain um but i did have a coffee and that was really interesting because um, you know, some airlines, they'll just make a big jug of coffee and pour it out. But Lufthansa had loads of sachets of coffee grinds. They poured it in the cup and then it had like this special lid that filtered out the 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 particles of coffee from the drink. So you're kind of drinking it and it's catching that, which was a bit weird. Um, landed in Oslo, though, and spent a couple of days in Oslo. And then I had a highlight because I flew Norwegian and um, that was actually the first time I've flown Norwegian and, you know, they're doing pretty well in terms of um, my experience. Unfortunately, we had a bus gate and I think we had the only <laughs> bus gate at the whole of Oslo airport somehow. Oh, wow. Um, that was a bit of a nightmare because, you know, me and bus gates, they're not my favourite. But yeah. um, it did, <laughs> I did get to see loads of North Atlantic 787s. Though. They're building up quite the collection in Oslo. Oh, right. Wow. Um, and it was also quite fun because it was the first time that I've had to taxi to the to a de-icing pad. And, uh, you know, it was just crazy watching the choreography because, you know, we just taxied onto this box and then these two things drove over to us, de-iced us, and then we carried on taxiing. And um, it was, you know, it sounds stupid, but it was quite cool. And then we took off and um, I had breakfast on the Norwegian flight because that was another early morning one. Mm. And do you know what the only thing I managed to get off of the menu for breakfast was? I don't know. Uh, basically the pasta equivalent of a pot noodle. Oh, <laughs> um, so that was <laughs> that's fun. not very breakfasty. Yeah, but um, we landed at Tromso, which is um, quite high up on my least favorite airline airports in the world list. Um you know, they had a tiny arrivals area for tons of passengers arriving, and the same could be said about departures. Uh, and the trays at security, you know, they were so small. I think, you know, obviously you could fit a laptop in them, but that was about pretty much all you could fit in them. I used, I think, two trays in Oslo. I mm. had about six trays in Tromso just because they were so small, and the woman behind me was getting really agitated. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry, I've got laptops, cameras, coats, bags. Um <laughs> There was, again, um, the thing I found really interesting about flying within Norway domestically is they've got rid of all COVID restrictions now. So that was kind of good because it didn't need to do a passenger locator form, didn't need tests, didn't need to show it was vaccinated. But it also meant that masks were like not mandatory on flights. And I'd say maybe about 10% of people were still wearing them, probably more foreigners traveling in the country. But it, it just, I don't know, I found it a little bit uncomfortable. Um you know, I kind of, I'm not going to say that somebody, another country's rule uh, should, like, mm. is their rules. They can make them. I'm not going to go against them. But um, yeah, it was just interesting. It was the same same thing in the airport. Um, but then flying back from Oslo, I think, was uh, from Tromso to Oslo for my last connecting flight was the most interesting flight I think I've ever had um, <laughs> because we were on an SAS A320 and 
just boarding this plane. I was walking through snow and snow settled on it because we boarded from the back of the plane. Mm-hmm. Um, snow was settling on my head uh, in the time that we took to walk from the, the door to the back of the plane. Uh, it was snowing that heavily. Mm. And, you know, the plane was already delayed by about 15 minutes. And then we pushed back and then the pilot came over the intercom and said, oh, uh, by the way, they've just closed the runway to clear snow from it. Um, so we're going to be delayed by about 20 minutes um and then finally when the runway did open of course there were a load of planes circling these little uh vidro uh, dash eights which you'd love to be on i'm sure i would um, <laughs> yeah they were all circling so they had to land first so we finally took off from tromso about an hour after schedule after the plan and mm. bear in mind we had an hour and 10 minute connection in oslo Um, (laughs) it was quite stressful stressful. to say the least yeah Uh, of course we made up some time on the flight but we still landed late um the cabin crew were great though they did ask um all the passengers who weren't connecting to remain seated to let those who needed to get off get off first and it seemed like the middle and the rear of the aircraft heard that message but the front of the aircraft didn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it was also interesting because loads of people got up while the plane was still taxiing to sort of grab their bags. And uh, the crew obviously weren't happy about that. We finally got off the plane and absolutely sprinted through Oslo Airport. I think I would have got a gold medal at the Olympics against um, <laughs> Usain Bolt. You know, it was yeah. it was honestly that level. I was out of breath. That was the only time I was happy not to have to wear a mask in an airport because <laughs> you cannot run that fast wearing a mask. Um, it got to the gate. And they hadn't even started boarding the flight. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> How frustrating. Um, yeah, it was very frustrating. But then we sort of jumped on that and got back to Frankfurt at maybe nine o'clock at night. So, you know, I'm happy we made that because, you know, I, I wouldn't have minded an extra night in Oslo and maybe some EU 261 compensation. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, happy to be home. And, yeah, that's, you know, uh, if you're interested in reading more, there's going to be a flight review for each flight on Simple Flying in the coming days slash weeks. Mm. Uh, so check that out. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I am a bit and jealous. I haven't been flying for at least three weeks. <laughs> I'm missing it already. So uh, yeah. oh, I'm well, glad you managed to get away. Been, and it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, you've been long haul flying sooner than me. So <laughs> I have. I have in a premium cabin mm. as well. You can yeah, check out my exactly. review on simpleflying.com yeah. as well. So, <laughs> But I won't I might brag also, about it. <laughs> I might also include an opinion piece on why I'm not a fan of Tromso Airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll look forward to reading that, Tom, for sure. Mm. Um, but we're glad to have you back. So I'm I wanted back. to round <laughs> off today by hopping back to the UK, Ukraine crisis just briefly. Um, but this is very much about pra- planes and not politics. Um, because Mm. the UK has been shipping out some medical aid um, and the Secretary of State, who is a man called Sajid Javid, has been very um, happily bragging about it on Twitter. Um, He said that UK donations of medical supplies sent to Ukraine had topped 300,000 whatevers. He didn't really specify what it was. I don't know if these were individual gloves or big machines, but but, yeah, we've sent 300,000 things. Um, And he shared some photos of the latest shipment leaving London. 
Um, and that kind of caught my eye because it was a rather unusual aircraft that was taking these products out to Ukraine. Um, it was a, an increasingly rare 737 Classic, and it's a okay. 737-400 operated by Titan Airways, um, who you guys may have heard of before. They're kind of the British government's go-to provider of charter services. They they do operate the uh, mini Boris Force One that took mm. our, um, our foreign secretary over to Australia recently. Um, mm. But the 747-400 is the oldest plane in their fleet, um, and it's nearly 30. So I just love seeing these old planes still being put to good use. Um, so I checked out how it did on its trip. It left London Stansted at about seven o'clock in the morning, and it landed mm. at... Um, a place in Poland that I don't want to try to pronounce. Um, the airport code is RZD. If anyone wants to uh, write in with the pronunciation of that particular location, that would be very much uh, well received. Um, yeah. so it was, uh, I'm not going to try either. You know my track history there. <laughs> so they spent just over two hours in the air. Not a, not a massive trip for the 737. Um, but of course, they can't fly into Ukraine because of the airspace ban. So this was about as close as they could get by air. Um, and then I'm assuming that onward distribution is taking place by road, although some of it mm. may well be needed in Poland for the people who've actually come out of Ukraine and are seeking refuge in Poland. Um, but this particular plane, it's called GPWS Powell's, um, mm. and it's the only one of Titan's cargo fleet that's headed to Eastern Europe since the war broke out. So, um, you know, the, the A321neo that I mentioned earlier, the one with the very patriotic livery, it has been busy. It's visited Warsaw and Tallinn. Um, and we think it was probably flying Boris Johnson, our prime minister, um, out to those places because he's been mm. kind of doing talks around the crisis in the neighbouring countries. Um, but this is the second time that GPOWS has arrived in Poland this week. Um, its first flight was on March the 1st. So as such, we can assume that each flight was carrying about 150,000 bits of medical aid, whatever mm. those things may be. Um, so I just wanted to briefly touch on the history of this plane because it's actually a really interesting one. Um, as I said, it's the oldest aircraft in the Titan Airways fleet. Um, but it didn't obviously go to Titan Airways at first. It went mm -hmm. from the factory floor, it went to British Airways in 1988. Okay. Oh, yeah, they used to fly 737s way back in the day. <laughs> they did. <laughs> um, it entered service as GDOCT, which would have been a great registration for a doctor's private jet, but British Airways got it. Um, mm. And it, it arrived just before Christmas um, in uh, 1992. Sorry, it was an order that was in 1988 and it arrived in 1992. And it arrived wearing the Landor livery. And at around the turn of the millennium, it was part of this Project Utopia, if you remember that, Tom, where they had all yeah, the kind of ethnically designed tails. Um, mm. And it got a, a really cool tail. There's some photos on our article um, of its kind of ethnically inspired livery. Um, and it flew with that for a little while. But by 2011, it was wearing the Chatham Dockyard livery, which the airline still flies today. Um, so it was finally withdrawn from use and stored at Victorville in December 2014. So it's had three different British Airways liveries, which I thought was quite cool for one little plane. Mm. Um, and then it was um, taken up in January 2018 by Titan Airways. Um, and sent to the, it was ferried to London and then it was ferried back to the States for conversion to cargo. And it now flies as a 737-400 SF or special freighter um, with the classic kind of Titan Airways livery on it. 
Um, and it's nice. been pretty busy, you know. It's not only been out to Ukraine delivering these cargo shipments of medical supplies. It's been busy all winter. It mainly zips between London and Belfast multiple times a day. So uh, mm. for me, I just love seeing these old aircraft doing um, yeah. doing their jobs as they should do and not just being left to rot. So good Definitely. on Titan Airways for keeping it flying. Mm. I do think that's about all we've got time for today. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.